said, I'm getting that higher intensity, getting the mitochondrial benefits. Cause that's how I nerd out. I'm like, when I'm exercising, I have to think of those benefits to keep me going. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte, geriatric physical therapist, weight loss coach, and passionate disease prevention expert. I used to struggle with emotional eating, sugar cravings, and consistency. Then I learned how to lose the mental and physical weight once and for all with a low insulin lifestyle. Each week on the Reshape Your Health podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you do the same. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reshape Your Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Nolte, and I'm really excited about today's guest who's sharing his time and expertise with us today. Dr. Joe Homard is a PhD in human bioenergetics, and he's a professor in the Department of Kinesiology, and he's the director of the Human Performance Laboratory at East Carolina University. He's a prolific researcher, and he has numerous publications online that look at, you know, how, how do different types and intensities and amounts of exercise, and he's predominantly studied aerobic exercise, has studied some resistance exercise, how does that impact our mitochondrial health? How does that impact our muscle health and our fat tissue and insulin sensitivity? And so among his research, uh, Joe, he gave me permission to call him Joe is part of a $170 million grant funded through the NIH common fund to better understand the body's response to exercise. I'm so excited for that research to come out because the goal is to understand how physical activity changes the chemical molecules within the body, which could lead to more targeted types of exercise. So my goal with this conversation today is to shed some more light on, okay, well, we know exercise is good. Why is exercise good? What types of exercise have you found to me to be most beneficial in the literature? So Joe, thanks for much. Thank you for joining us today. I'm glad to be here, Morgan. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And we, we were talking offline and like, well, what's the message that you want to share from this? And it was really that there are health benefits to be gained from exercise, especially regarding insulin sensitivity, even without weight loss. And so you mentioned that you um, speak to diabetes educators um, about this. And I think that's kind of a nice place to start. But before we get there, I want to hear your story. So I always like hearing people's stories. You know, how the heck uh, did you get your PhD and <laughs> what you did? And I know that you've been at ECU for a long time um, and you've done a ton of research. So what drives you to continue that research and what brought you to this place? Sure. Uh, yeah, just really briefly, um, you, you know, in high school and college, I was a distance runner. You know, I ran uh, cross country and track throughout. And so that was at the time of the first running boom. And, you know, I always wanted to try to figure out how to get faster, you know, how to improve my performance and publications were just starting to come out on that, you know, again, to date myself, that's when we started finding out that caffeine was good and that things like Gatorade were good. So that just led into, uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I was interested in that stuff. So I went and got my master's uh, and looking at some aspects of human performance. But the big one was my PhD. I got with a fellow named Dr. David Kostler at Ball State, who was kind of the guru of figuring out what made a a better endurance runner Hmm. and uh, learned a lot, learned a lot of physiology. But then I also realized that, you know, athletes are a tiny component of what we as exercise physiologists should be working with. I mean, it's great, it's fun, uh, but really, you know, there's aging, there's obesity, there's type two diabetes. And so I, I did a, a postdoc here at ECU to try to find out more about that, you know, to okay. get to the bigger, the bigger picture. And I guess they liked me. Uh, they offered me a job <laughs> <laughs> really quickly because uh, I was looking for jobs because my wife was pregnant. And I thought postdoc, uh-uh, no, I got to get some money. Uh-huh. So they offered me a job and I've been here ever since. It's been a great place to work and raise kids and everything like that. 
That's awesome. And I know we were talking offline. You're from Ohio. I'm pretty much from Nebraska. Um, so it's kind of fun to connect with another Midwesterner and, um, just a little bit more laid back, which is fun. Um, so tell me a little bit more about what you have learned. Like what are some major themes that you've learned in your 30 plus years of research regarding the benefits of exercise? Yeah. Yeah. So I think one of the the biggest things I've learned and that I try to emphasize when I go out and give, uh, talks is that, you know, exercise is definitely like a drug. That's the analogy I use. And if you uh, don't take a drug, guess what? It's not going to work. And those, the things that happen that are good when you take a drug go away really quickly when you stop taking it. So exercise is exactly like that. And in the terms of insulin sensitivity, which I think is one of the most important aspects of health. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, you look on TV, you see this thing called prediabetes, you know, figure out your number and all that. Well, that's prediabetes is just another term for insulin resistance, Mm -hmm. being resistant to insulin. And with exercise, you can reverse insulin resistance really, really quickly by just contracting your muscles. And you don't need to lose weight to do that, to improve that aspect of metabolism. So that's one of the biggest things I try to stress. Just get moving, get your muscles contracting. Do not have that, you know, goal at the end of everything to lose 20 or 30 pounds, because that's a little different than what exercise can do for you. Will you kind of go into the physiology behind why is contracting our muscles so beneficial for our blood glucose and insulin levels? Sure. Um, so one of the biggest things is that muscle is very plastic. Okay. So when you stress it, it tries to adapt to that stress and the most common you know, example, that's going to be weightlifting, right? You stress it by lifting weights. Guess what? The muscle gets bigger. Well, with endurance exercise, you're placing a different type of stress on the muscle. And what that does is it improves the way the muscle utilizes energy, you know, primarily through things like the mitochondria. When you're exercising, you want to be able to oxidize or burn and create energy from things like fat. All right. So you become more effective at at burning fat. You also deplete stores of glycogen in your muscle, you know, the the stored form of glucose. So after you're done, you have to replenish that, which takes glucose out of the, out of the bloodstream when you eat it, that makes you more insulin sensitive. So really the, the changes that occur at the molecular level with in skeletal muscle with endurance exercise have to do with adapting to the fuel that you need uh, during, and for a little while after the endurance exercise. Okay. And I, I think that I read one of your studies, or maybe it was a different study down the, you know, the research rabbit hole that I'm sure you've been down a time or two, you go to look up one study and then you keep looking up studies that the, the beneficial effects of exercise stopped, as you said, pretty quickly. So before we kind of dive into age and obesity and different, um, efficiency of skeletal muscle and, um, you know, fuel usage. Let's talk about that first. Um, how fast do the effects and beneficial effects of exercise fade when we stop? Okay. Now it's important to stress. This is relative to insulin sensitivity. Okay. Okay. You know, when you, when you stop exercising for a week, you know, you're not going to become obese. You know, you're not going to necessarily lose muscle mass. You won't lose a lot of aspects, but for insulin sensitivity, it goes away really fast. Um, even without regaining weight or anything like that. I mean, when we've looked at highly trained, uh, weightlifters and endurance subjects, uh, we looked at them about a, after a week of no training, and it wasn't that different uh, from people that didn't exercise at all in terms of insulin sensitivity. And we've also taken people that we exercise train, you know, who are sedentary and we'll exercise train them for, you know, three to nine months. Insulin sensitivity gets a lot better. But when we look at them, you know, two weeks after they stop, okay, you know, they do the exercise, typically people stop. Uh, they lose that adapt- adaptation really quickly. I mean, it goes back to almost zero. Yeah. And insulin action is one of the important things that's linked with disease states. So uh, with insulin sensitivity, 
easy come, easy go. Yeah. I love that uh, analogy of a pill. You know, it's like, well, it doesn't work if you don't take it. Um, so what do you feel like would be the optimal recommendations for insulin sensitivity? Um, you know, in the average population, we'll say. Yeah. Um, you know, I get that question a lot and honestly, the answer's not really, really evident. You know, that's what a place where a lot of research, you know, is being done. And I think, you know, as a result of that, the public gets confused, right? Because just look on the internet, exercise programs, they're all over the place. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, so when I talk to the educators and other folks, it's, I always say something's better than nothing. Because remember, all those adaptations I talked about were muscles contracting. So 10 minutes, 15 minutes, if you can get it contracting, that's going to help you. Um, what we found was in uh, older middle-aged individuals that were sedentary, uh, if we could have them, we call it walking with a purpose, you know, if we could have them walking with a purpose for at least two two and a half hours a week, that really improved insulin sensitivity. Okay. Mm -hmm. Almost as much as, you know, slow jogging for a similar period of time, you know, really it was equivalent. Yeah. So with insulin sensitivity, it seems to be a factor of time. You know, if you can get out there and do something two, three hours a week, spread across a couple days, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes a day, not all in one day. Uh, we found that that's pretty successful and also attainable for people, you know, mm -hmm. if they want to get healthier. Yeah. I have a question for you about aerobic training versus resistance training with minimal rest breaks. Um, so I don't know if I told you this, I'm a mom of two young kids, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and I used to really enjoy some distance running. And then when I had my son, he only lasted like 20 minutes at the gym before the caretaker was like, Hey, Morgan, your kid's crying and he won't stop and you need to go now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I really had to find the most efficient form of exercise. Um, and at the time, and it continues to be strength training for me. And one thing that I do is really try to lift heavy and minimize my rest breaks so that I keep my heart rate up. Does that count towards this aerobic type of training or is there a different mechanism regarding like that continual muscle pumping. So I kind of wanted to pick your brain on that heart rate remaining elevated versus the continual muscle pumping aspect of the aerobic quote unquote exercise. Right. So really you're kind of talking about circuit training uh -huh. and, you know, circuit training is a good mixture of aerobic and resistance. Um, but when you look at it, resistance training, it's not just the muscle, right? You're releasing a lot of hormones mm -hmm. and the hormones that get released in response to resistance training can be quite a bit different than what you see with endurance training. And, you know, when you're looking at the whole body with muscle contraction, it's also a function of the hormones that are released. So, you know, it, it, it's good what you're doing and you're probably getting a part of an aerobic response but the nature of the resistance training, you're probably not getting the same hormonal response. And again, it's a different, probably a little different drive to the muscle, more of a hypertrophy drive, yep. but it can still improve insulin sensitivity if that's what you're looking at, right? Uh, other outcomes are going to be a little different. And that's a really, really good point. So I'm a geriatric PT. I've had other PhDs on here to talk about bone health osteoporosis prevention, you know, for that, we, the weight bearing exercise of walking, especially walking uphill is good, but the resistance exercise is even better for bone mm -hmm. health. And I think reading through your research and kind of piecemealing it together with, um, what I know as a PT is like the aerobic exercise is almost the lowest hanging fruit. We were mm -hmm. talking offline. All you need is a pair of shoes, mm -hmm. walk up and down the stairs go outside. But if you want to really optimize your health and prevent falls, prevent fractures, have strong bone, strong bones, um, improve body composition regarding lean muscle mass. That's kind of where the strength training I think is really beneficial. However, after reading your research, I'm like, I got to get back into the aerobic training. Um, too. I think that it's been almost like a, mm, a time crunch thing. You know, there's seasons of life where you have a certain amount of time that you're willing to dedicate towards your health and, uh, kids are starting to sleep more. 
which is great. So it's like, oh, I think I can invest a little bit more of my time. And instead of doing more resistance training, I'm going for a jog today. So it's like, I listen, I learn and I do it. And I also wanted to know how has all of this research over the years impacted your physical fitness program? Like, what do you do personally? Right. Yeah. And I think you emphasize it. I mean, you know, the aging process, particularly when you're talking about bone health, muscle mass, I mean, uh, that's when uh, it's you start losing that muscle mass is a natural part of the aging process and it tends to go away. And even if you are resistance training, you know, you're going to lose some muscle mass over the years, but you're still going to be at a higher level than a person who does nothing. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Uh, resistance training, aerobic training, it's not a fountain of youth, but it keeps you looking a lot younger physiologically than somebody that's similar to your age. Um, in terms of myself, um, yeah, you know, <laughs> I know I need to resistance train. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> but guess what? Yeah, that's, uh, that's why I ran endurance running and stuff in high school and college and gravitated toward that because I don't get very big. I don't like resistance training. My mind is aerobic, but I realize the importance of it. And, uh, you know, as I get maybe a little closer toward retirement and get that more time that you're talking about, exactly. yeah. yeah, you know, maybe I can get in there and do it because it is important and it's important to have a balanced regimen and definitely muscle mass. Muscle strength is never a bad thing to have at any age. No. And I, especially as you age, um, I, I also think that the role of exercise and mental health is so important. And I think, I don't know if you guys are studying any neurological effects of exercise in this, you know, $170 million study, but I'd be really interested to know if there's a difference between, for example, yoga versus walking with a purpose versus resistance training in dopamine in you know, different neurological hormones that impact our mood. What have mm -hmm. you seen in the research there? Oof. On that one, I don't know, honestly. Yeah. Um, okay. You know, I don't know about that. You know, you know, the little bit that I do know, and it could be wrong, it's maybe been disproven, but, you know, endurance exercise tends to trigger endorphin release. Right. Resistance, not so much, you know. Mm -hmm. So there's, like I said before, there's definitely differences. Um when you're talking about mental health and neurological, I think it's undeniable that exercise has been shown to help. And I don't think it's too specific on what type of exercise it is. It's just like you said, probably most of it's going to be endurance because that tends to be what most people do if they do anything because it's the easiest. Yeah. You know, and I think, oh, go ahead. You know, and there's even, but there's even more, there's the social aspect of the whole thing, oh, right? Sure. You know, uh, walking, you can talk resistance training, you got other people around you. I mean, when you start incorporating all that stuff, it becomes a whole lot more than just the exercise itself. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I wanted to pivot and return to that conversation about skeletal muscle. And can you describe for us what is healthy skeletal muscle versus, um, inefficient maybe, or unhealthy skeletal muscle. And we can kind of start the conversation there. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, when comparing the two healthy skeletal muscle, uh, is going to be able to utilize oxygen more effectively. Okay. So it's very easy to see, you know, if somebody exercises with healthy skeletal muscle, they can maybe go a little longer at a healthy, at a higher intensity because their, their muscles are more effective in using oxygen to make energy. Okay. Thus, those muscles are more aerobic, which means their mitochondria are more effective in using oxygen to make ATP, to make energies. That's one of the biggest things. And, um, when you go down a little deeper, healthy skeletal muscle is able to utilize, uh, both fat and carbohydrate blood glucose, muscle glycogen, you know, a uh, lipid that's secreted by the fat cells that travels to the muscle. It can use that for fuel, both at rest and during exercise, mm -hmm. you know, so that's kind of one of the hallmarks is fuel utilization and healthy skeletal muscle has the ability to be flexible. 
You eat fat, guess what? That muscle burns the fat. You eat glucose, guess what? You know, it stores the glucose or it oxidizes it or burns it to keep the muscle healthy. It can switch. It's called metabolic flexibility. You don't see that in unhealthy skeletal muscle. Mm. Okay, it's uh, doesn't use oxygen well to make energy. It's more glycolytic. Um, yeah, it, that's one of the bigger differences is fuel utilization. Okay, and so just kind of to elaborate a little bit about on that, if someone who has healthy muscle tissue eats, for example, a high fat meal, um, even if it's healthy fat. And they're, for example, maybe eating a lower carb diet, the muscle can use that fuel instead of store it. But if someone's metabolically inflexible, what happens if they have a higher fat meal and they're not eating the carbohydrates that maybe are readily used by the muscle? Yeah. So we've done what we call Super Bowl weekend studies or Christmas holiday studies <laughs> or Thanksgiving, right? Where regardless of who you are, you're usually sneaking in some fat there somewhere uh -huh. along the way, you know, so three to five days of high fat feedings, we've looked at those. And what you see is that in, per, in healthy skeletal muscle, uh, they ramp up the enzymes in the mitochondria and everything. They adjust to oxidizing the lipid rather than, you know, letting it go to the fat cells to be stored. Whereas when you put, let's say an obese individual, under that same sort of diet, um, they don't ramp up to oxidize the lipid that they're consuming. So then you can imagine if it's not being used for fuel and muscle, which is a big user, it's gonna go be stored in fat cells. Now that's overly simplistic, right? but you know, the muscle just doesn't adapt to doing what it should do in terms of disposing of that lipid. So it's gonna be stored. And it gets stored in places like just not your adipose tissue, but you know, places like the liver, you know, fatty right. liver, right? If your muscle's not doing a good job disposing of fat, it gets stored in the liver and some even get stored inside muscle itself, which is not a good thing. Yeah. I, I like to say marbling is good in our steak, not in our muscle. That's for um, sure. And so I think that when I think of healthy versus unhealthy muscle, I think of when I was in, uh, I was an anatomy TA in undergrad and in PT school and I had a love hate relationship with the cadaver lab because I just loved dissection, like dissecting. And I loved seeing the anatomy and you can see, you can cut through and you can see muscle that's healthy and lean versus muscle that is infiltrated with fat, you know, and yellow deposits. So will you talk a little bit about the change, like the changes in muscle ver like versus a healthy individual? um, an obese individual. And then as we age, so let's start with healthy versus a healthy person as they age, mm -hmm. how do we see that muscle tissue change versus like regarding, um, you said lipid oxidization, oxygen utilization, and then uh, fat storage in the muscle. Yeah. So as, as you age, uh, one of the biggest losses is that you lose muscle mass. Okay. That's why resistance training is really emphasized mm -hmm. during the aging process. And when you look at it, you know, it's not like people are need to be 60 and start reserve resistance training. I mean, muscle mass starts going down as, you know, early as stage 30 at age 30. Yep. Okay. So that's one of the big things. So, you know, I spoke all about how muscle oxidizes lipid and everything. Well, guess what? If you have less muscle, that's less of a sponge or less of a machine to dispose of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So just by the nature of it, you know, you have less muscle mass, less mitochondria, you're not as insulin sensitive in the whole body, you become more insulin resistant. And, uh, you know, exercise will help with all that stuff. But like I said, it's not gonna, uh, you're still going to get some of that regardless of how much you exercise, because that's the other fact of the matter. I mean, you can't do what you did when you were 30, when you're 65, Yeah. you know, the volume, the intensity. So that's one of the big things with the aging process. You want to do something. It's definitely healthier, uh, you know, but looking at muscle atrophy, muscle, losing muscle is the big thing. Yeah. Okay. And then how about if someone, let's say that they were at a healthy weight when they were 30, and then we know that people gain, well, 
not all people, but a trend in America with, you know, over seven out of 10 adults overweight or obese is that we're gaining weight, you know, as we age. Mm-hmm. So let's say they're uh, quote unquote in the obese category uh, by the time they're 50, what's changed in their muscle between when they were lean, when they were 30 and obese, when they were 50. Yeah. So, you know, fat, although I don't study a lot, fat in itself sends out lots of inflammatory signals, you know, so a a large fat mass is just not good in terms of inducing whole body um, inflammation. So with obesity, you are also storing, you mentioned marbling, you know, you're storing more fat around the muscle cells within with that too. And so adjacent to the skeletal muscle, you're having these inflammatory marker, you know, things Mm -hmm. happening because white blood cells infiltrate. And then there's this whole thing that happens that makes the muscle more insulin resistant. You know, it just leads to that. Um, and there's really no pronounced atrophy with obesity. It's just that skeletal muscle metabolism changes a lot because unfortunately with the development of obesity, a part of it might be because people aren't as active. So it's kind of double jeopardy. You're getting the aging response that I talked about. And then on top of that, you're piling on a fat mass, which uh, is not a good thing. And that fat is right next to muscle too, and causing all sorts of problems. Yeah. I think one of the research studies of yours that I read that I thought was really interesting was looking at the different types of exercise as it related to fat loss and like weight loss versus gaining lean muscle mass, because we, you know, we want to lose weight. We want to lose fat mass, but we don't want to lose our, our lean muscle mass. So if you remember that study or from other research, what are, you know, how did aerobic exercise fair versus resistance exercise for those outcomes? Yeah. You know, I can't recall that one as much. Uh, Of course, resistance training is giving you the signals to retain muscle mass. So like a boost in uh, growth hormone, those kinds of things. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when you're losing weight, maybe resistance training could be more appropriate, you Mm -hmm. know, for if you're just looking at muscle mass. Um, But the key to all that is, you know, the more you starve yourself, the more your body's going to use muscle for fuel, right? So when you hear the recommendations of losing two to three pounds a week, that's not very exciting. But at the same time, then you're talking about losing fat mass as opposed to, you know, losing more lean mass in proportion. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, resistance training is good in those respects. I mean, aerobic training, if you look at a most runners calves, for example, they're not small, right? That's true. Yeah. You know, it's just not as robust. Uh, You still get some of that, but um, probably any sort of exercise, but you're right. Resistance might be a little bit better, particularly when you're really trying to lose weight. Okay. And I I was surprised. I, I, from what I remember, I think the research study said the both are beneficial, kind of like you were alluding to, and that the aerobic was almost more beneficial for the fat loss, but then the strength was more beneficial to reserve or to preserve lean muscle mass, which we know is good for long-term, you know, fat loss. And so it was kind of like, okay, so both is good. <laughs> yeah. Both is important. Um, so what do you feel like? I think it was a really interesting point that I didn't want to overlook when you said it was more the volume than the intensity that improves insulin sensitivity. Will you kind of speak to that? Cause that was pretty encouraging to me. Um, and I think to anyone as they age, if they feel like I'm not doing as much as I used to, um, can you speak to that? Yeah, this is a study called the stride study, uh, that we did with Bill Krause at Duke. And, uh, it was a pretty large study and we focused primarily, uh, on people, now that we would say look like they had prediabetes, you know, age 50, sedentary, you know, maybe their insulin values are high, they're overweight, maybe, you know, right on the cusp of obesity. And we wanted to look at three exercise prescriptions. And basically one was walking about 12 miles a week, which was the two hours, two and a half hours, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I'm, I hope I'm getting this right. One was jogging 12 miles a week. And then another was jogging like 20 miles a week. Yep. Okay. Yep. And the good news was, is that we found that the walking was just as good as the jogging. And the common thing that those two had in common was simply the fact that they did it for about two, two and a half hours a week. Okay. So in other words, it was the time that you were exercising not necessarily that you were jogging or walking with a purpose, if that makes sense. Yeah. Now that might be very specific to the population we looked at Yep. and very specific to the exercise paradigms. You know, these weren't, you know, huge, big increases in exercise volume or something, but they're, they are what was recommended. Mm-hmm. So at least for insulin sensitivity, I mean, there was lots of other markers that the high intensity exercise favored. You know, no doubt about it, but for insulin sensitivity, it looked like, you know, and this is why I tell people the minutes per week, you can do it is the important part. Will you touch on, um, what were those other markers that were good? Because I, I can't, I read it, but I can't remember. And it's like, that's why I got to go jogging, you know, because, um, I want those benefits of the high, higher intensity training where was it 60 to 85% of your max heart rate? Yes. It was something like that. Right. So you know, early on, we talked about how aerobic exercise is a stress, you know? So guess what? If you stress the muscle more by going more intensely, uh, your mitochondria are going to become better at using oxygen. So things like your VO2 max, your maximal aerobic capacity will go up more if you do more intense exercise for a longer period of time. That's one of the big ones, your aerobic capacity increases. Mm -hmm. I think the other one that we saw, again, exercise isn't a great thing for weight loss. but you're expending more calories if you're jogging for 30 minutes, as opposed to walking for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Right. And so with that, you're going to get some weight loss Mm -hmm. and you're going to get some fat loss and that will be accentuated. Essentially the more energy you burn by doing harder exercise for a longer period of time and not a lot, but one of the big things we saw, particularly in the men, was that that higher intensity exercise was pretty effective at reducing belly fat, not necessarily overall fat so much. Uh, we exercised people in that study for nine months. And I think on average, they might've lost three, four or five pounds. Right. But, but yep. the good thing was the fat was locked from some from the bad place, which was the the stomach, the visceral. Yeah. The stuff that you can't grab with your hands. Um, I don't know if you've researched this, but the hormone adiponectin, um, I think that I've seen before that that's one hormone that increases with exercise that preferentially causes fat to be stored in the subcutaneous versus the visceral. So that might be one hormonal adaptation. Are you aware of any other, you know, physiological reasons why the exercise may be beneficial for visceral fat. I think you touched on it. Um, you know, visceral fat is what we like to call metabolically active. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's inside your stomach cavity, right? It's right next to the liver. It dumps its fats into the liver. So when you're talking about things that, you know, like aerobic exercise where the hormones are secreted that let's release fat so the muscle can burn it so we can keep going. That metabolically sensitive intra-abdominal fat is where it's going to happen. Mm. Okay. Now on the flip side, you know, that's why intra-abdominal fat is also not good because of primarily the location and, you know, it's dumping fats right into the liver. It goes right into the hepatic portal system. Uh, and it's also releasing fat, releasing fatty acids at a lot higher rate than other than subcutaneous fat, just because of its location. So it can go away, you know, by being metabolically active, but also it's very negative due to this metabolic activity in terms of dumping bad things into your circulation. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I have to ask you this question from a adherence standpoint, the studies that you perform have pretty long, um, intervention periods, you know, three months, eight months, a lot of like eight months, nine months where you're recruiting sedentary people to start exercising sometimes, um, at the caloric equivalent of jogging for 20 miles a week. How are you doing that? How are, how are you, um, getting people to stick to something for that long, especially when it's a 
new to them? Yeah. Well, uh, for one thing is, of course, we ramp them up. You know, okay. <laughs> it might take them three months to get to that point that I spoke about. Uh-huh. And I use jogging as an example, but, you know, probably in most of the people, they just put the treadmill at a bigger grade. Yes. Right. That's important. That, yeah. that higher intensity and they don't have the impact and everything. Uh, it's just not as graphic a demonstration <laughs> in your head. Some people like to jog. I mean, we got some people to run their first 5k. I mean, it was all, that was all fun to have them shoot toward that goal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's tricky. Uh, you know, we do lose people. Commonly we lose people because, you know, that's the time constraint, you know, how do we keep them going? How do we keep them motivated? We do the little things like making parking easy, you know, accommodating their schedule. Um, we have students and we have the students exercise train individuals and, you know, when you're talking 50, 60 year olds, it's like that. They like the interaction, you know, with younger folks and talk and sometimes it become attached. So it's little things like that. And then also, honestly, in the bigger studies, uh, you do get paid. Get paid to exercise. Yeah, there's a little bit of a monetary uh, reward. But if you asked most most of the people in this study, they're like, no, I'm not doing it for the money. Yeah, It's not that much. So if someone's listening, like, oh, I'm going to make money and you know, call Joe and be in this study. It's like, it's not that much money probably, but yeah, it's not, it's not, but it's a little bit helps. Uh-huh. That's true. Um, so there is a ramp up phase, which I think is an important thing. And then I cannot remember what it's called for the life of me. I had a really awesome personal trainer on who had had both hips, hips replaced and a back surgery and all this stuff, but he really enjoys to increase the intensity of his walking, um, weighted vests. And so you could put that on, you could walk at an incline. You don't have to be jogging to get this high intensity. So I think let's kind of differentiate high impact versus high intensity for people that are listening, who are maybe fearful of the the jogging thing that I'm talking about that I'm going to do after this interview. Sure. No, I think you're exactly correct. Yeah. It's just getting your heart rate up there higher. And you got to do something different other than you can only walk so fast and get it up so high. Right. And so the moderate intensity, what is it? 50 to 60% or so of your max heart rate. Usually you're falling in there, right? Okay. And the higher intensity is like 60 to 85. Now for Mm -hmm. the novice listening, what's a simple way that they can calculate that maximal heart rate so that when they're exercising, they can check it really quick in the gym and they can say, all right, I'm doing what Joe said. I'm getting that higher intensity, getting the mitochondrial benefits. Cause that's how I nerd out. I'm like, when I'm exercising, I have to think of those benefits to keep me going. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, honestly, the best way to do it is to have a maximal stress test, you know, Uh where you actually make yourself, you know, go, uh, to where you almost can't go anymore. And that's your maximal heart rate. Because the classic way was 220 minus your age. Mm-hmm. And uh, with that, it's a good ballpark. But when you look at it, that can be plus or minus 10, 15 beats. So there's quite a bit of error linked with that. Uh, you can use that as a ballpark. It's better than nothing, right? Yeah. Uh, but if you really wanted to do it, you'd work with an exercise physiologist or maybe somebody in the gym and just have you increase the, let's say, the grade on a treadmill until you got to stop. And then you look at your heart rate. Okay. There was, I can't remember it, but there was another formula that I learned when I was studying for my geriatric clinical specialty. Um, and it could be unrelated the Carvonin. Yeah, that could be from a step test or something like that. Um, you know, or it, there are prediction equations, like you would track your heart rate, let's say over three mild intensities. And since it's linear, you should be able to predict your max heart rate. Uh, But again, you know, with any prediction thing, it all depends on the population that you made the prediction in. Yeah. And a a lot of that is young college age students, because guess where we do our research? There. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, (laughs) People who want a little bit of money and who have some free time. That's right. But that 220 minus the age, um, 
I think that it maybe overestimated it for younger individuals and underestimated it for older individuals. Right. Um, so what I'll do is I'll look up whatever formula that I found when I was studying for the GCS and I'll put it in the show notes for this, for people who are really want to nerd out and they want a better equation than the 220 minus your age. Um, and then just to kind of finish that thought, it's 220 minus your age would be the maximum. And then you take that number times, you know, 0.6.65, and that could be the the low end of your high intensity range. Take that, you know, 220 minus your age times 0.85. That might be the, you know, up to 85% of your max heart rate. And that's how you know that you're working in that higher intensity. And I think that this is a, an important conversation too. And maybe, uh, maybe as you said, you don't work with this population as much, but I know in geriatric PT, if people are on a beta blocker, uh, that blunts their heart rate, or maybe they have a pacer and then they're set at 80 beats per minute. Um, we used a Borg scale. So like mm-hmm. a rate of perceived exertion scale. Have you seen anything else in the literature that might help um, people who are on a blood pressure medication, maybe that blunts their heart rate to kind of gauge their intensity of exercise. Yeah, you're right. Uh, cause heart rate isn't always the best to do it. Right. I mean, it's yeah. the easiest we have heart rate monitors and all that. Uh, I mean, a big example is think about if you, you know, it's getting warm down here in North Carolina, you go out in the heat, your heart rate's going to be a lot higher, even though you're doing the same thing, you know? So, uh, like you said, ratings of perceived exertion are usually pretty good. I mean, I think, you know, earlier on, I talked about walking with a purpose for 30 minutes, right? That hours per week might be the most important thing. So regardless, if you make all these calculations and you only can do it for five minutes, you're probably going too hard, you know? Yes. So I think that's another way to do it. When you're done with the allocated time, you shouldn't be throwing up and falling down or anything like that. You should be tired though. So these perceptions that you were speaking about, I mean, they're probably a lot more accurate than what we think. But again, the big thing I think is time. You just got to get that in there. And heart rate is part of that equation. That's an interesting, I never really, it's a simple thought, but I never thought of it. How when I'm strength training, what I use to gauge my intensity is my reps. And if I'm not at fatigue failing after 12, I feel like I need to up my weights. I'm I'm outside of that moderate to high intensity where I want to be to really build strength. And I think it's interesting. You can kind of use the inverse of that for aerobic training. If you can't do 30 minutes of an activity without, you know, feeling like you're going to pass out, maybe we need to back off the intensity. Mm-hmm. And I obviously mean, anything is better than nothing, as you said, but that's a really interesting way to, to think about it. Well, the easiest thing is just the talk test, you know, go out with somebody else. And if you can talk to them without taking big gasps or something, you're probably close you know, uh-huh. about where you should be. Yeah. I know I've really uh, enjoyed quote unquote mountain biking in Nebraska as much as you can. There's like, you know, a couple Hills around here (laughs) and that's a really fun form of aerobic activity. I have to stop and catch my breath. And to me, that really tells me, okay, I'm working at a pretty good intensity here. Mm -hmm. So if you feel a little bit of short of breath, that's okay. I think there's also that misconception where people are afraid to feel a little bit short of breath. Like, especially if they're novice exercisers, they might think that something's wrong. Um, any, any advice that you have, you know, for the novice exerciser, who's maybe a little bit intimidated by the conversation that they're having, that we're having, and they're thinking two and a half hours of exercise a week, there's no way I can get there. What would you tell them? Yeah. Um, First of all, I emphasize, you know, there's a lot of empathy for time per week. I mean, exercise is, it's hard to fit in. You just have to view it as part of an investment in your health, right? Mm -hmm. And like I said, if there's a social aspect to it, if you know somebody's waiting for you, that helps with with all that. Um, I think that, you know, we have these perceptions of aerobic exercise, that we're doing it to lose weight, that it really needs to be intense you know, and that we're suffering the whole time. And, you know, at the end, we're just exhausted. It doesn't have to be like that. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't have to be like, you know, walking the dog crazy slow. Uh, 
but you know you want the intensity up there. It should be something manageable. And it's a little rule that we always did was is that when you're done, you should always kind of feel like, man, I could have done maybe a little more. Mm-hmm. Right. That's again, these are about as non-scientific things as I can tell you. But it's applied you know, science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh it doesn't need to be this crazy all-out stuff, you know, mm-hmm. to get to get benefits. So I don't think people should be intimidated. And uh, there's lots of tools and we have the internet out there that can, you know, help with people too, if they do have questions. Yeah, that's true. Um, I had one more question, one more topic that I wanted to discuss based on what I saw from your research and that's exercise in pregnant women. So maternal exercise and how that can impact the health of the baby. Um, did you want to speak on that at all? I, I did not read those research research studies in depth, but I just, you know, I'm a young mom and I have friends who plan on having more kids. And so I was just curious because when I got pregnant, there was some fear around that. And there was some, um, fear that I don't want to hurt my baby. I don't want to work too hard. I don't want to, but I also know for me, it's a mental health thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I just, I I wanted to hear your thoughts on that from what you found in the research. Well, uh, you know, I have two really good collaborators here in Linda May, who's been doing this for a long time, and Nick Broski. And um, I can tell you that Linda's looked at, she brings in people that are sedentary. And I think at about three months, two and a half months, she'll start them on exercise training. And it'll either be aerobic or resistance or a combination of both. And she keeps them within, I, I can't remember the recommendations, but they're within recommendations. So that is a big misconception. Uh, The thought used to be that, you know, if you're exercising before you get pregnant, yeah, you can continue. But if you get pregnant and then start exercising, Mm -hmm. that's not the way to really do it. And that's not just not true. I mean, you're not going to be running marathons, obviously, but uh, no, it's it's acceptable to be healthy. There are recommendations out there. And of course, it's good for the mom, but we're just starting to look at what happens to the the baby. And I know Linda's research is, and other people, that, you know, sometimes the babies are a little leaner, but more importantly, they stay lean maybe a little later into their lifespan. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that's the sort of things that are happening. Um, what we've kind of looked at recently is that we get cells from the umbilical cord which represent the baby. And we see that in moms that exercise, those cells are very different, you know, than in moms that are sedentary. And again, we're just touching on that, but we're realizing, and a lot of people are beginning to realize that exercise imprints the baby in certain ways that could be, look like they can be advantageous. Uh, But we just don't know much about that in humans. There's been a lot of studies done in rats uh, in other animal models, but in humans, it's just kind of starting. Yeah. Did, are you able to elaborate on like how the stem cells are different or not yeah. much past that? Um, let me recall, cause this is all so, so recent Yeah, is that, um, we, I think we saw that, uh, in the cells from mothers that were, you know, sedentary and maybe a little more overweight that those cells were again, programmed to storage. Okay. These stem cells were programmed to store. All Mm -hmm. right. Which these stem cells go off and later in development become fat cells. Yeah. So maybe you're, you know, and and you think about it for a baby in the womb, that's great. You want that baby to store energy and get bigger and all that, but uh, it might not be so helpful, you know, when they reach teenage years, but so exercise looks like it impacts the metabolism of these cells. And we don't really know how it affects later years of age, but it looks like it might be beneficial. I think that alludes to the genetic predisposition for obesity as well. We know there's a genetic component. Um, it's not solely lifestyle. It is, you do get, you can't really choose your genes, you know, but I think it's helpful to be aware of that and to kind of think back, well, what would, what, what were my mom's health habits? You know, am I set up to store or maybe burn or, and I think it just helps people be more cognizant of their choices and how maybe some genetic components might influence them to be a little bit tighter around their lifestyle. 
Um, I think that the main point of this conversation in my mind, it, it alludes to, um, something I heard from Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. And she says, you know, you can't out exercise a bad diet. You can't out diet, no exercise. And I think that there's a lot of people out there who try to do that. You know, they try to out exercise a bad diet and do it. They try to, um, out diet, no exercise. You can't do it. You get different hormonal benefits. And I cannot wait to see that, um, big research study come out on that. And my last question for you is what would you love to research? You know, like, what do you see five, uh, five, 10 years from now? Like, what do you feel like? would just light you up if you could research it. Wow. I haven't honestly thought about that. I'm just trying to get through this <laughs> week, <laughs> you know, get, get to the next week with me, try to question. get done what I have. Uh, uh-huh. I honestly haven't thought about that. You know, um, I think what would be really great and it's probably going to be almost impossible, but you know, what's the exercise prescription that you could use to improve insulin sensitivity, that would be a one size fits all, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is America, right? We want to get the most bang for our buck in the least amount of time possible. So if we could figure out, you know, here it is, this is one that we are really sure that will work. And it might be different for a 30 year old. It might be different for a 50 year old, right? To find these optimal exercise prescriptions. And then The other side of that is also that, you know, exercise, weight loss, everybody responds differently. So if there's a way that we could predict that, you know, this person should be doing resistance training because they don't have the genes to respond to endurance training, you know, and so we're going to target them to resistance training. I think that would be really cool to, to be able to do that because it's targeted medicine, you know, it, yeah. And that's a very real thing. I mean, when you look overall at exercise, aerobic exercise, it's always helpful, but that's the average. There's some people that don't respond and some people that over respond. So mm-hmm. I think we need to keep that in mind. And if we could figure out markers of that, I think that would be great. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate your contribution. Um, thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. Um, we'll be sure to link up um, some of the studies that we talked about and um, you and other resources in the show notes. Any last words that you wanted to share? Before uh, we wrap it up? You know, I think the thing about the mom's exercising is really important. There's this field called epigenetics, you know, yeah. and you mentioned you got your own DNA and all that, but they're finding out exercise can do some good things, even in relation to your DNA. So um, in, in all in all, I mean, it's been a great field to exercise. Hopefully we're helping people and I think, you know, podcasts like yourself where people maybe get more of the basic good information helps. Yeah. Kind of, um, let's, let's talk about the research and how it applies to real life. And, um, hopefully if you're listening today, this was a little bit of a motivator to maybe up the exercise, uh, dose up, you know, aim for that two to two and a half hours a week to improve insulin sensitivity. Uh, if you're not strength training and you're tired of me telling you to strength train, well, here's another reminder. <laughs> so thank you so much, Joe. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Reshape Your Health podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and don't forget to tell a friend. To learn more and connect online, check out the links in the show notes.